for you, and we just ask you to bless this as we study, and that you will lead us into what you'd have us to learn from this, and that you would be, if anybody else is on the way, you bring them quickly, and we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. All right, this is a song we used to sing in church when I was growing up, so Psalm 100. 100. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, his truth endures to all generations. So this is a very short psalm, but very packed. And happy, happy, upbeat. Yes, we are in that, we are in the section of upbeat, happy uh, psalms in this It's all about the tabernacle on these ones. So So it starts out, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. And I love this word in here for joyful noise. It it literally is that war cry, that that alarm, that, you know, it is the, but it is also that joy. And we've talked about this at various other scriptures, this idea, if you've watched any of the old movies that, involved this hand-to-hand combat world they would run to each other with loud cries and and roaring sounds uh, joyful they would there was some joy in the battle but it was also deemed to we're we're more we're we're more enthused to get into this battle than you are and we're more excited about it and try to scare the scare the opponents who's yelling just as loudly back at you and but God is saying make a that joyful loud war cry you're going into we go into battle and this is something we've talked about a lot we are in a battle in this world and when we go and we are making that joyful sound before the lord we're letting satan know we're ready for war we're ready for the spiritual warfare that's going on and this is part of why we draw together as a body of christ so that we can get prepared we can say we're ready to go out into battle and we tend to forget that we're in battle quite often as Christians. And that is when we get ourselves in the most trouble is when we forget and we don't get into the word. We don't get into prayer. And the next thing you know, we're kind of off in nowhere land and, and feeling depressed and feeling isolated and feeling beat up. And we are beat up spiritually because we forgot we were going into battle. We forgot to prepare for battle. And this is true even in real battle most people get hurt in a real battle because they forget that they're in battle for a moment they'll be resting they'll be sweating they'll they'll take their helmet off for a moment and just sit up a little too tall above the above the bunker and get shot they will take off the battle gear because they think they're safe because they're not right on that front line and the next thing you know they've got the bullet that that kills them because they for just that moment forget that they're in battle and we as Christians do that a lot. God, I don't need your strength for this moment. I'm kind of on the back line. I'm at peace. And next thing we know, we're, we're shot through with a temptation or a complete sin because we were not guarding our heart at that moment. But it is true that when we stop for just that moment and forget that we're in battle, we're in trouble. 
That's when we find ourselves drawn away. It's when we don't put our guard on, our, on an area of our life because we, we're strong in that area. We don't have to worry about that area. And one thing I keep telling us, everybody, is whatever area you think you're so strong in that you will not fall, you're almost guaranteed that you will fall in that area because you're not going to put a guard on that part. It's like, well, I don't, and I, and I use my example. When I walked away from the church because I got so busy in my workaholism that I didn't put a guard on my desire to go to church, and I ended up not going to church for a couple of years, if you'd have told, again, if you'd have told me as a teenager there'll be a time when you don't go to church, I'd have laughed at you because I loved God so much, and there was no way that I would never go to church, and I considered that a strength. Because there was just no way I'd ever not go. And yet, your very strength is where, where Satan will attack so often. Because on our weaknesses, we tend to put a guard on it. God, I need help. I'm weak in this area. I need you to help me. When the, when the attack comes in, and God, you, if, you don't, if you don't stop this one, I'm going to be in trouble. And then we will tend to not put that guard on where we think we are strong. And then we really... And that's a double attack on us in one sense. When we fall in where we think we're strong, we've, number one, we've fallen, and then, we've, then we really feel bad because we fell in an area that we know we shouldn't have fallen in. So it becomes a, a kind of a double hit on it. And Satan, you can really use those ones when we fall in a very strong place to say, you know, ah, what kind of Christian are you? You couldn't even stand in your, in your strength. And your point is we can't stand before him. We cannot make it through his attacks. And this is something we have to be careful of as Christians, that we don't feel so confident in our own flesh that I can stand up against Satan's attacks because we'll fall and we will fail. We, we all have places in our life where we might think we can get by and then we end up losing it. And after we lost a few times, then we get to get humbled enough to say, God, I can't stand in any place. Or we learn it early enough on, which is usually you have to learn it the hard way. With God, we can get through anything. And it says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Who are we making this? Unto the Lord. And it says, all you lands. One of the things I'm catching, the more I'm teaching the Old Testament, is how very clear it is, even in the Old Testament, that God wanted even the Gentiles serving him. We see this, all you nations, all you lands, all, all the earth, all you people, uh, when we were studying the, the tabernacle and the offerings, God made it very clear that the Gentiles were allowed to come in and give him offerings and sacrifices. Now, the Jews always isolated itself, and they made it that you couldn't come into the temple to offer sacrifices unless you proselytized and became a Jew. But God, all through the Old Testament, was very clear that he wanted everybody to worship him. And we see this over and over. So when, when Paul and them are saying... This was the mystery of God. It's kind of dark. You have to, I mean, I can understand how they missed it, missed it ahead of time in some degree because he didn't say, I want all Gentiles here. He just said, there's one rule for all people. There, I want, you know, everybody is to praise me. Everybody is to come to me. And the Jews decided that well, to do that, then they had to become Jews. They never understood. They never see, saw it, even though it's very clear, even in the Old Testament, that the law did not make them righteous. The law did not make them good. The law did not make them acceptable to God. Why were they acceptable to God? One, one reason only, God chose them <laughs> and gave them the offerings that, and the blood sacrifice. But yet, they decided that this is how you are with, 
with God, you had to be a Jew. Now, having said that, we have to be careful because many Christian denominations get that same way. You have to be this denomination or you're not quite as pleasing to God as, as we are. Now, most Christians will accept that the other denominations out there are, well, as long as they accept Christ, they're, they're, they're going to go to heaven, but they're, they're sub. They're not quite as good as we are because we're following God in the right ways. Now, nobody is going to come out. None of the Christian groups are actually going to come. Well, I shouldn't say none. There are some that do, but most of them do not come out and say it quite that way. But if you're around them long enough, there's this we're better than you are mentality because we're following God more correctly than you are. And I've been in enough of them to know that this is a true statement for many of them. The other ones, while they are Christians, are going to heaven, but they're just not quite on the same plane that we are. I've heard it even in the speakers on, on the channel that I listen to. There's that little bit of edge. They know that we've got the truth. And I'm sensitive to it because I was in a church that was very strong in that we're better than everybody else and wouldn't, would not co-labor with other people because they just didn't have enough for the truth of God. They, they had the salvation message, but they weren't quite as, as good. They didn't have the, the full depth of what we have. But it is in many denominations have this mentality. Whatever it is that they think is important, and most denominations have one or two key points that they hammer on and, and, and look at almost completely, even though they'll, re they'll look at the rest of it. But there are certain places where they think we're better, we've got more truth in this area than anybody else. And in essence, you're not going to go any place that doesn't have that to some degree or other. You know, because that is just, you're at a church, you're there for a reason. Or a denomination, and you're there for a reason. Because you think that they have it together in whatever areas <laughs> that you need or that you hear. Usually it's not bad and pushed out there where they won't relate to other people. Some churches get to that place where they don't relate to other, other groups because they're just, not, they're just not following God good enough in these areas. And that's when they start pushing the edge a little bit too, too far. You know, we're better than everybody else. And getting to that place can be very bad. To, to have pride in what you're teaching is one thing. All right? Because you need to have some pride that what you're doing is teaching God's word and, and you've, got it to, you know, you've got it together. And so... I just, like I said, I'm sensitive to it because I've seen, seen it pretty heavily and had sat in one that just would not co-labor co with other, other groups. I mean, it just didn't happen because they weren't far enough advanced in all their teachings. And that gets you a little, that's starting to push you too far the other direction. And we need to be able to absorb other groups because each group has some that is a Christian group has an area where maybe they're a little overbalanced in an area, but you start taking what, they're, what they know and, and apply it to the other places, and you get a, you know, get a greater balance out of, the, out of the whole thing. It's very important. The grace message is needed. Uh, the, the power of God is, is needed. We need all these things, and this is one of the things. I love the Baptist doctrinal statement. You can't go wrong in a Baptist church with the doctrinal statement. But they tend to limit the power of God because of their view of the Holy Spirit in most cases. We need to be careful. We get into churches that really overemphasize the Holy Spirit and kind of lose the, the doctrinal truths because they're, they're over here in this experience and power side of things and they kind of lose the, lose the idea of the, the doctrine and God's word being absolutely true. And we want to be very careful because we can get...
We can also get so far into the grace that we forget that God has rules. Or we can get so deep into rules that we forget that God is grace. We want to be very careful that we stay balanced. And this is one of the reasons that teaching the whole counsel of God and going through the, verse, the Bible verse by verse and through the whole thing is very important. And I'm glad that it's starting to kick back into full swing because there was a time when it wasn't a very popular way of teaching. And it's coming back. Because what we find, if you don't go verse by verse through the Bible, and anybody who's been in a church that doesn't do this, you start hearing, you very quickly get to know what's important to that pastor because everything they teach is on that, what they think is important. Every, ser every other series, every third series, whatever, comes back to what they really like. It's the book they like, and they come back to that one book, and, and it's the topic they like, and they keep coming right back to that same topic. And that's why... I love going through the whole Bible, but I was, it's amazing to me how I'm starting to think, God, I said, you were very repetitive here. I keep teaching the same things. God got to really know how hard-headed we were as, as people. Each book teaches the same, same story over and over again in different ways. <laughs> There's times when I'm sitting here and I'm going, God, I just taught this thing in this other book. And he's going, yeah, look at that. And we say, I keep teaching the same thing. But God understood that we need to have something repeated to us 100,000 times before we finally get it through our head. But it is an amazing thing that he keeps repeating the same things over. And part of it, I think, is there's also this, uh, this process where God also brings out what he wants brought out to the church over and over again. Because the messages are needing to be hammered away. And I know that I've been very thick-headed over my lifetime, and I had to hear things a hundred times before they finally sunk in. When they sunk in, it was like, oh, yes. <laughs> the light clicks on, and it's like, I know the truth now. This is what's, what a lot of people go through. They have to hear it so many times before it starts to really come on and say, oh. And then you'll hear somebody say, oh, I finally heard something for the first time ever. And it's kind of funny when I've listened to people give a testimony. This is the f and I heard the gospel for the first time ever, and you know, especially somebody you know, and I go, well, I know I told you that years ago. Or, or you're, in a, you're, in a, you're listening to somebody talk about, yeah, you know, you mentioned that the other night, and it's the first time I ever heard it. And you're thinking, well, it's about the fifth time I've taught it in the last year and a half, but praise God you finally heard it. I'm also seeing the patience of God in the scripture, how he kept repeating the same things over and over and over again to people because he knew that people needed to, the repetition on it. You know, God wasn't standing up there and saying, you dummies, I've given it to you already. How come you don't understand it yet? He just kept repeating it. Here, here it is for the hundredth time in the scripture, but he gave it over and over and over again because he knows that we as humans have a hard time comprehending things. Then he goes in verse 2, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Serving the Lord. God gives us the opportunity to serve him. And I love that we get to serve the Lord. Then he says, with gladness. With gladness he wants us to serve him. That's mirth, gaiety, pleasure. One of the things that I have told people in the past when they tell me they're really struggling with some service for God, I, I tell them, well, then stop doing it. If it's really that hard for you to do it, stop doing it. It's not yours. God wants us to serve him with gladness. He is not giving us jobs that are to drain us and tear us apart. 
yes, try things. If you don't, if you don't enjoy it after you know, three, six months, then maybe it's not your calling. Go find something that is. Because I've told everybody, when I serve God, the things I've learned over the years to serve him in, I do not feel like I am struggling and having a hard time. I love to teach God's word. I've had even some pastors go, how can you teach five times a week like you're doing? I'm going, because that is what I do. There is no challenge to me to be sitting there. I love the study. I love the, the, the preaching of God's word. If I wasn't doing it, I'd want to do it because that's where I'm at. And this is important. Serve him with gladness, not out of compulsion because that becomes works. And this is very important. What are you doing for God? Are you enjoying what you're doing for God? And I've shared with you, when I left College Park, everybody kept telling me, you're doing so much, you're doing so much. And I never felt like I was doing that much until I went to find people to replace me (laughs) and realized that it took a bunch of people to do all the jobs that I had done. I'm going, wow, I guess I was doing a lot, but I never, I enjoyed everything that I did. Every service, I was the first one there. I turned the lights on. I made sure the rooms were ready. I, I would get the chairs together. And I was the last one to leave. And that included the pastor. I got there before he did and left after he did in most cases. That's why she went home early. Yeah, that's, why she, that's why Lynn brought the car and left home early and, and came afterwards. But for me, I was just doing things that needed to be done. I did administration of all the different activities that went on. I just enjoyed doing what I was doing and never felt like I was being doing enough, actually. I never really felt like I was doing anything because I enjoyed everything that I was doing. My challenge for people when they're serving God is, are you enjoying what you're doing or are you doing it just because you feel that it needs to be done? And there's a very big problem when people do things just because it needs to be done, they're going to feel stressed out, they're going to not enjoy what they're doing, and the worst part about it is, if you're doing the job that somebody else is supposed to be doing, they're going to look around knowing that they want to do what you're doing and say, oh, it's already filled, what am I going to do? And they're not, they may end up doing nothing because you were filling in the wrong job. Because it had to be done. This is, there's no job in God's kingdom that has to be done so bad that the wrong person has to be in it. Because God has the right person to fill it. No matter how big or small the church is, God has the right person that is to fill that job. I would not be a good person to do the construction work around a church and the repair work around a church because... I, number one, I don't enjoy it. I can get some things done. You know, I know, the, I know the engineering part of it, but I'm not the right person to do most of it. I can do some electronics work, which a lot of people can't do, but I, it's about as, clo- about as much construction work as I can do. So if I'm trying to fill in those jobs, I'm not the right person. But when it comes to teaching, then there's the position that needs to be filled that I can do. So we all have a place in the body and when we're doing what God wants it, we will be serving him with gladness because we'll be looking forward. God, I like doing, I like doing what I'm doing. When I'm doing administrative work, I like doing administrative work. When I'm teaching, I like to teach. If I'm doing the cleaning and stuff, it's not what I like to do, though I can do it. 
<laughs> but we need to be able to understand what is it that God is asking us to do and then step forward to do it. There's a position and a job for everybody to do in God's kingdom. The part that is important is finding out what your part is in it. And one of the things I've told a lot of the men at the prison, I'm going, when you're outside and you're looking to serve God, don't overlook the things that you enjoy doing, even though you think that that might not be serving God. You'll never know how much blessing there would be just offering to do the simplest jobs. So we never know what that job might be. People go, well, I just enjoy gardening. You know, it's always fun to watch Loretta. Loretta loves pulling weeds. She's getting to the way where she can't do it as much as she wants, but she loves pulling the weeds. And when we're doing what it is that we're called to do, we're probably going to be called to do something that we love to do. You know, God is not a God out there saying, I'm going to find out what you really don't want to do, and I'm going to go tell you to do that. You know, that we laugh about that, but there's a lot of people out there that think that that's what God's going to do to them. If I ask God to serve him, he's going to find the thing I hate the most, and he's going to ask me to do that. No, he's not. He's going to take what you're gifted and, and good at doing and challenge you to do that. Because that was a, you hear that a lot. Well, I, I don't want to serve God because he might send me to, to the, the middle of Siberia to be a missionary. Well, if God, if God puts that into your heart, then he'll send you to Siberia. But that's not where he's going to send you if, if that's not your heart. The best missionaries want to go where they're going. Very few missionaries would be successful if they were sent someplace they didn't want to go. God has put into people's heart what it is they're going to do. Now, sometimes God will put, put something in our heart that we didn't know was in there and give us great desires to do something that we didn't know. And so he may be asking us to do something later on in life that we would have never thought about doing at a younger, younger age because we grow and we change and our heart changes and we never know exactly where we'll be. He will grow us into being able to do some jobs. And I like to use somebody like Billy Graham as that. If Billy Graham had first started preaching and God put him in the middle of the million, you know, a million-person coliseum or 100,000-person coliseum with millions of people on TV, on his very first sermon, he probably never would have gone on to be the evangelist that he became that could do this. Okay. It's very important when we first start these things. When we first start teaching Sunday school, we're not going to be expert Sunday school teachers. But as we grow into the job and we learn how to do it, we get better and better at it. And God gives us, takes our gifts and our talents and he moves them further and further into how to deal with children. To the point where you start going, you only have 50 kids in my class? Where's the rest of them? <laughs> Give, give that first teacher a 50-person class, they'd panic to death. <laughs> 50 kids, ah! <laughs> but after you've done it for a few years, it's like 30 kids, 50 kids, you know, but no real big difference. <laughs> and God challenges us and he grows us. And it says, come before his presence with singing. There is beauty in, in song before God. I love to sing, and this is part of making that joyful noise before God at times. 
God enjoys our praise. He enjoys that worship that we give him. And the great thing about it is, when we start worshiping God and we start singing to God, his presence will come into that moment. His presence will come into that moment of our praise and our sing as we come before his face in our, in our worship. And that's why I've shared, you know, when I was in the, in the restaurants, I used to just take breaks when, things, when the pressure was really getting on me. I would just take a break to go, at the very least, go to the back room, back area and get supplies and just give a quick prayer or just a very quick worship song. Refocus back on God and have his presence fill my life in the middle of all that pressure. It was better to take the trash out because that gave me a five-minute break <laughs> with him. And it was like, okay, this trash has to go out <laughs> and just refocus my mind on him and just sing a quick praise song and, and bring God in, you know, get God and I together in the middle of all that pressure. And it's something I really have advocated with people. When you're in the middle of a very stressful, hard time, and those are the times when we don't think we have time to praise or do anything, stop and bring a moment before God. Doesn't take long. It doesn't take long to give God, I, I'm really being stressed out here. Give me, I need your, your peace. God, I just need you in this presence. If you have a moment that can sing a song, sing a song. Take a favorite hymn that you have or a favorite, favorite chorus and just spend a moment, three or four minutes, five minutes, and come before him when all this pressure is on you. If you're in a place where you can't sing, at least just take a moment and pray. Purposely pray and not just this God help me prayer, but just God, you are so wonderful and you are so great. You had the power to help me through this and, and I just want you to come and help me through this. He says, cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. We need to be able to start this whole idea of focus on him. He is our answer. We come before his presence with singing and joy. And God, I want to come before you, and you're going to come, and you're going to help me through this problem. And you know, so many times when I have done this in a high-pressure, high-stress high time, I've refocused on God, and all of a sudden, you just turn around and there's the answer it's amazing how when we just focus on God he opens up this is the way through the problem and it doesn't matter how little the problem is if you're being stressed out it's not a little problem at that moment to you now of course to God all of our problems are little but he is right there ready to focus on us and, and go forward verse 3 Know you that the Lord, he is God. I love that statement. There's a, there's a joke about seminary that uh, everybody kind of talks about. And the first thing you learn in seminary is there's one God and that you're not him. <laughs> okay. But that's what this is saying. There's one God. Know, know ye that the Lord, he is God. Most of us get in trouble when we forget that he is God. And we try to be God in our own universe. And God's saying, uh, when you're done trying to be God, I, I'd like to come back down there and help you get through this because I'm the one that knows the answers. I'm the one that created this. I'm the one who's standing above everything, looking down and seeing all the ins and outs. But ever since the fall, we have had this problem as human beings. The temptation on the fall was 
consume this fruit and you will be like God. And too often we tend to want to be God in our own little world, our own little universe. God, I can control all this stuff. You just be, you stay there and if there's a big enough problem that I need you, I'll come and, I'll come and uh, talk to you. And God is saying, I am God. And he's always going to be God. And when we keep that in mind that he is the one in control, he is the one that gives us the answers, he is the one that leads us, he is the one that guides us, things get a lot better. But when we forget that he's God and we try to be in control, we might think we're in control for a few minutes, uh, maybe only a few seconds, <laughs> but God is usually very good about showing us that we're not God. He lets things hit us that are going to tear us, tear us apart and say, well, if you had just been hiding in me, you'd be okay. If you would just trust me, you'd be okay. If you just rele released everything to me and followed where I lead, you'd be okay. And this is what he goes on. We, it is he that has made us. He is God. He has made us. And not we ourselves. <laughs> okay. And this is some place that we, especially around America, we have all these people that are the self-made man, the self-made millionaire, the self-made woman. I am where I'm at because I did everything myself. And when you meet those kind of people, they're irritating, number one, because they have no sympathy for other people. Number two, they're not, they've never self-made themselves. Almost every one of them had a lot of help getting to where they were at. Not just from God, but from other people around them, their family, the ones that had made sacrifices so that they could be the self-made whatever. And yet God is saying, if you only knew what was happening. And when you think that you've done everything else, you tend to look down on everybody else who, who has weaknesses. And you're looking down on, well, if they just tried a little harder, they wouldn't be. They wouldn't be poor. They wouldn't be without the vehicle. They wouldn't be without the retirement account. They wouldn't be needing, need, they wouldn't have had all these kids if they had just uh, controlled themselves. And, and, you know, they look at everybody and they look down on everybody because they did everything themselves. And God is saying, no, we didn't create ourselves. We didn't, we didn't put ourselves where we're at. It is him that made us. He made us with our weaknesses, and he made us with our strengths. He makes us. Our weaknesses are designed to draw us closer to him because we need him, and he gives us strength so that we can show others how to get through and help others in those strengths. But even those are his strengths. <laughs> so we want to always be careful. He made us, and then he goes, we are his people the sheep of his pasture. I love this, the sheep of his pasture. And this idea of pasture is, he is our shepherd, our leader, our pastor, who leads us into safety, who leads us into abundance of food, who leads us into calm places. May lead us through trials and tribulations, but he is there as the leader, the shepherd. And shepherds, lead their flock. 
Not like the cattle drives that the cowboys and would do, and even to this day where they drive uh, cows and cattle. Because cattle can't be led. Cattle don't get led, they get driven. Sheep get led. And God says, I lead my sheep. And even to this day, we see that the shepherd goes forward and the sheep follow the shepherd. And we did a whole class on sheep. Sheep follow. You find whatever they're going to do and you get one or two to follow them and the whole flock will follow the one or two that are following the shepherd. Because that's their nature. That's also why we get into trouble as human beings because we are just like sheep. We will follow the dumb sheep that's walking over the cliff. They will follow the dumb sheep who's walking around behind the hill that can't see the shepherd and start bleeding because they can no longer see the shepherd even though he's only three feet away on the other side of the mound of dirt. And they go crazy because they can't see the shepherd. They can't see the rest of the flock. And God is saying he is our shepherd. He is our leader. And when we're dumb and we start going around the, around the hill the wrong way, that he went, he went to the right and we go to the left, and all of a sudden we can't see the shepherd, we get panicked. And we go crazy and try to do things our own way. And the shepherd comes and finds us after a while. But he is, we are his people. He is our leader. Now, there are many out there that don't recognize him as the leader. That doesn't change the fact that he's the leader. He's the shepherd. This is the important thing for us always to understand. The lost world is without their shepherd. They cannot see the shepherd. They've, they've gone into the ravine. They've gone into wherever. They want the shepherd. They want to see him. They just don't know what it is that they want. Just like the lambs who kind of get, get out of sight of the rest of the flock. And I shared with you, I had a man that I went to his house and we prayed together and they had about eight sheep in their yard. And they had this little hill in there and every once in a while when we were in the middle of prayer and there, there would be one sheep out there screaming its head off, bowing and, and panicked. And he goes, just a moment and he'd have to go call the sheep around the hill to the rest of where the rest of the flock was because it couldn't see the rest of the flock on the other side of that little hill. And it wasn't a big hill. It was just big enough that the sheep couldn't see the rest of, the, of the rest of them. But we see this with human, humans all the time. We see this with, our own, with Christians at, at times. We get out of the sight of the master and they get into panic and try to do things in their own, in their own way. And it says, verse 4, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his holy name. Enter into his gates. One of the things we've been talking about in Psalms so much is God is our defense. He is our strong tower. He is our protection. He wants us to come into the tower through the gate, his gate, his entrance. And this is very important. This word also for gates is indication of entering into the temple gate, entering into his courts. It's that whole idea of going into the castle through the main gate and into the throne room. And he says, enter in. Once you're in there, you're protected. That was the place where you got to present the one place in the, in the, in the 
palace or in the castle that everybody had access to was the throne room. That was the one place you could enter into the king's presence. That's where his, his main throne sat. That is where he instituted judgment. But that was the one place that everybody could go into. Satan, even at this moment, has access to the throne room of heaven. He has no access to any other part of heaven, but he can come into the very throne room of heaven before God and try to accuse the brethren, us, at the throne room of heaven. Now, beyond the throne room, there was plenty of other things in the palace, but only certain people could go past those doors. Satan only has access to the throne room of heaven, and that's all that he has. And, but in this case, God says, enter in, enter in. And he says, to enter in with thanksgiving. The whole idea that we can enter into the throne room of God is wonderful. We can go into his presence. We can, we can get in there and say, Father, Abba, or even Daddy. You know, we have total access to the master of the universe. And he says, enter with thanksgiving. Why do we have this? Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But we have this opportunity to come before him with confession and praise and thanksgiving and just be, come before him and into his courts with praise. We come into the throne room, and then we go back through the doors beyond the throne room, into the courts. Into the courts, his, his more personal area. Uh, when we were teaching on Esther, we showed everybody this map, and there, there was the throne room, and right behind the throne room was all the different, the, the, the courtyard that ran to the dwelling places for each of the individuals. This is what he's saying. We get to go to the courts. We have access to everything beyond that. Not just the throne room. Not just the entrance of his throne room, but everything in behind because we're family. We get to have access to the dwelling places of the king and the queens and, every, and the, all the cur, uh, courtiers and the, and the banqueting room and, and all of these things that are deeper into, the, into his presence. And he says, enter in with praise, adoration, songs, public, public adoration. Very important. And in Exodus, 9, uh, Exodus 25, verse 9, it, Moses was told, here's the pattern for the tabernacle. You know, he's getting ready to tell him what to build on the tabernacle. And he says, make everything the way it was, was supposed to because this is patterned after the real tabernacle, okay, which is a real temple, which is God's throne room. Whatever that looks like in reality, he patterned the tabernacle after it. And the mercy seat, the real mercy seat is in heaven with a copy of it on, in the temple. The, the showbread, the altar of incense is all part of what heaven has in there. Altar of incense representing the prayers of the, of the saints. And the prayers of the saints are gathered before God in some way and somehow in heaven in, in some form of altar that he gathers their prayers in. All of, the, all of the fellowship, all of the things that were gone were there. God says, this is do it exactly right because it's a representation of my kingdom, my, my throne room. And so... 
we look at this, and he's saying even here, enter into his throne room, enter into his courts. And in one sense, that's entering into the holy of holies with him, right into his presence in a very strong and powerful way. It says, and when we can do that, it says, be thankful unto him. You know, and I love this. This literally is the idea of giving him laud, praise, exalting him, glory. And I love it in, in Hebrew, the word glory means to make heavy. You've given him so much praise that you're just, you're not just giving him some praise, you're heaping it upon him. And, given it, and, and God asks for that. For whatever reason, he asks for that glory. Give him so much praise, it's in heavy weight. And for most humans, there are humans who enjoy that, that overabundance of glory. There's a lot of us that don't like it. But we want to be careful that God says, heap this praise on him. Be thankful. Bless his name. Bless his name. That's an idea of kneeling down and adoring him. And again, we've talked many times, what is name in, in the Bible? It is not just his name. I mean, there's a lot of people who get fixated on the name of God. You've got to call him by his name. I remember in the 80s, there was a great big movement on the Yahweh only movement. You had, if, you didn't, if you didn't address God by the name Yahweh, you weren't addressing the right God. And, and you were, you were, and if you didn't, if you named him God or God Almighty or even Jehovah, you, were, you weren't worshiping the right God. And this was very interesting because they were misunderstanding name. Name literally in, talks about the reputation of the individual who's named. And very important that God wants his name lifted up, his, all of his reputation, all of who he is, not just the literal name. And this gets you even into Jesus. Right now we're starting to move into this idea that you've got to address Jesus by the right name. And they're always going to Yeshua. You know, his name Joshua in Hebrew. Uh, and if you're not using that name right, you're using the wrong name. If you're using the Greek name Jesus, you're, you're, you've got the wrong name and you're worshiping the wrong God. Let's get serious on here. God, God is going to say... You know, your name is what it is in each language. If I don't speak Hebrew, then I'm not going to understand Yeshua. I'm going to understand Jesus or Jesus if I'm in, in Spanish. You know, that's, we need to be so careful of the name is not the literal name. It's all the reputation and power that the name maintains. And I love the one pastor that I talked, that was preaching one time, and he was going, when... The name is the reputation. And his example was when a policeman says stop in the name of the law, they're not saying stop in the, uh, stop in the name of these pieces of paper in my hand that are in the library in the, in the town hall. <laughs> That's not what they're talking about. <laughs> they're talking about all the power and authority that is represented by those pieces of paper stuck away in the courthouse <laughs> or the or the Congress or the town hall. They're not talking about the literal pieces of paper. And we understand that. And that's what it talks about when it says the name of God. Not just his literal name, but all the power and authority that's behind his name. Not just, I've got to speak the right name or I'm giving him the wrong, you know, wrong name. 
you know, I understand his name in, in English or, or German or Russian or Spanish or, or Portuguese, but man, I don't understand that Greek and Hebrew stuff, and I gotta, gotta figure that stuff out so I get the right name. That's not what he's talking about. He says, my name, the power, the authority, everything about what it stands for. This is the idea of an ambassador before God, uh, before, that goes for a country. They represent their country. Everything they say, everything they do is a reflection on their, com on their country. And if they misbehave, they've drawn shame, not just to themselves, but to the country they represent. We are God's ambassadors in a foreign country, this world. How do we live, do we live a lifestyle of an ambassador that brings honor to God? Or are we doing things and, and saying things that bring dishonor to God? Not just ourselves, but to God himself. And this is why we are to bless his name. We are to honor his name. We're to be thankful. We're to be close enough to him that we don't forget who we are. And oftentimes we forget whose we are and who we represent. And we end up doing things that we shouldn't be doing just because we're running around doing whatever we want instead of what we are to do as an ambassador. And there is certain things about an ambassador. Ambassadors get lots of privileges because they represent their country. And they can also bring a lot of shame to their country if they're not careful. Verse 5 says, For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and His truth endures to all generations. I love this first statement, For the Lord is good. And the Lord is always good. He is always going to do what is in His nature, which is to be good. His mercy, His kindness is what He wants to do. He's also righteous and holy, and we've got to make sure we keep that in mind. But for his children, the ones he's already forgiven, he is always going to be good. He is going to give us blessings. And the, the, the statement that, is good, that has been very popular, God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. We want to keep that in remembrance. Whenever we're going through really hard times in our life, God is good all the time. Even when it doesn't make any sense to me, God is good all the time. When, it does, when I'm all bent out of shape because everything seems to be bad, God is good. And these are the things we have to keep in mind. If I always keep in mind that God is good, He is sovereign, he is in control of everything. Nothing surprises him. And all things work together for good. It doesn't matter what I'm going through at that moment. I go, God, I don't understand any of this, but I know a few things are true. You are good. You are in control, and you are going to work things for good. When we have that attitude about everything, what is going to get us down? Really? It's a great test when we're in the middle of trials to say, do I really believe that God is good? Do I really believe that he is in control? Do I really believe that all things work together for good? But it is so important because if we truly believe these things and we're in the middle of a trial, we just fall back on them. And like I said this morning, 
I learned the hard way. You don't share God, all things work together for good to somebody who is in the middle of a trial who doesn't believe it in the first place because it just makes them mad at you. You know, to tell them that God is good when they don't truly believe that God is good in the middle of their trial isn't going to help them. Now, if you truly believe these things, you'll be telling yourself these things. And sometimes that's the only way I get through things is when I'm going, God, there's a lot going on, but you are good. <laughs> you are in control. You've promised that things are going to be, that all things work together for good. And it's very important sometimes for us just to sit back and say, God, it's, it's you, you're good. And God's not dead. I, lo I love the, the, the black pastor missionary that was talking to him all the time and going, David, don't you, don't you trust God in these you know, things? You know? And you know, it was quite an interesting contrast you know, that he said, God is good, and the one that understood it and the one that was learning it. And it takes time to learn this. The better off you get with it, the easier it is to be able to just help people share. If you really believe this, you don't panic when bad things happen. You don't, you don't go crazy when bad things are happening. You don't, you don't worry when that bad things are seeming to happen. Because you just say, God, you're in control. You're good. And it says, he is good. His mercy is everlasting. God's mercy. And remember, the definition that we've given for mercy is not getting what you deserve. God does not give us what we deserve. And to that I say, thank you, God. <laughs> because if I got everything that I deserved, and I, and I like most Christians, have been a Christian for a long time, I've, you know, got a, don't have that many bad things, but I still, if I got what I deserved for each one of my mistakes that I do make, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here for even those mistakes. And the mercy that God shows even to the lost world. Great mercy that they don't understand. He shows them so much mercy because if he gave them what they deserve, they would not be here. They would never have a chance to turn to him because they would have been destroyed for all of their, all of their misdeeds. God is merciful. So merciful that we probably don't understand how fully merciful he is to even us as Christians and to the world. The mercy that he shows them. The mercy that the psalmist in the early psalms was complaining about all the time. God, why, why are the heathen always being blessed? How come you're not destroying them and giving them what they deserved? And God's saying, because I want them to come to me. If I destroyed them, they wouldn't be able to come to me. And yet that looks to the world and even to Christians like, boy, they're getting away with everything. And God's, no, they're not getting away with anything. They will eventually get everything that's due to them if they don't come to me. But he's saying, I'm giving them enough time, enough trials, enough opportunities to come to me. And then once they get, come to him, they get all of his grace. <laughs> they get all of his grace when they finally come. And how many times do we get impatient with people Loved ones, family, co-workers that seem to be getting away with everything and not turning to God. And we're going, God, how come you're not giving them what they deserve? God, get, you know, give them a taste of what they deserve, at least, God, so they'll come to you. And God's saying, be patient. Be patient. It's my mercy. Because if I, gave them, if I started giving them what they deserve, they wouldn't make it. They would be wiped out. 
God gets to the end of his patience, end of his mercy at times. He did with Noah. He's going to in the near, very near future when he raptures the church away and lets Satan have, have an almost free hand or in, for seven years. And then he's going to destroy everything by fire at the end and say, we're going to start all over and we're going to, get, we're going to just use the, the, the redeemed to restart this world. But he says his mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. God's truth, his word, endures. His truth, that firmness, the fidelity, the steadfastness of God, endures. And this is what we were talking about this morning. God's truth. When he gives us a truth, he is correct. Whether we believe him or not, he's correct. Whether we believe it or not, he's true. We are better off just resting in his truth, doing it his way. Because we will, we will convince ourselves real quick when we want to walk against his truth, we'll convince ourselves that we're doing the right thing. Now, God, if you just understood all the circumstances that I see, you would realize that, I, that what you say is not quite right and that I know what is true. Now, we may not be quite that blunt, but when we do it, that's really what we are doing. God, if you just understood my circumstances, my circumstances are, are, are such that your truth doesn't quite match up, so I'm going to walk in my circumstances, God, and you'll just see that I'm right. As we fall flat on our face and go, man, Joan, I wish that I did things God's way. All right? And I've seen this over and over, especially with people saying, well, I'm just really in love with this person. They're not saved, but I really just have to get married to them because I really think God wants me to because we're just so much in love that I'm going to be able to win this person to Christ. And you see them five, six years later after their, after their divorce or after their life has been totally made miserable, and they're going, I wish I had listened. I wish I had obeyed God. I wish that I had done it his way. People getting into business with, a, with an unsaved partner and then struggling all the time of trying to do it God's way while the partner's wanting to do it the world's way. We, we justify living together because, God, if you just understood, you know, that's, you know, we get married, you know, especially, and this is what I said this morning about older people. Older people are living together when they would have never considered it because they don't want to lose their Social Security because somehow God is not strong enough to take care of them financially if they lose their Social Security check. We need to be able to say, God, I want to do it your way. <laughs> I want to do it your way. And not get into all of this rationalization of way of saying, God, I just know, I know just a little bit better than you, God. I know you wrote the rules, God. I know that you're in charge, that you are Lord. But God, you just, you don't understand all the circumstances that I'm going through. His truth endures for all generations. Which is why when we read the scriptures, we read the book that's, that's 4,000 years old, 6,000 years old, and we read those words, and they're just as true today as they were when they were written. And it's amazing to look into his word and say, wow, as, it, as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything we're going through has been gone through. We have new ways of delivering it, you know, delivering it. We have new ways to deliver pornography that have never existed, but it was just as much in their face in the Roman days and the Greek days as it is in our days. It was just as much for pornography in that. There's, 
just as much infidelity, there's just as much sexual sin, there's just as much untruthfulness in this world as there was. Politicians are still corrupt. They've always been corrupt and always will be corrupt until we get to the millennial kingdom because power corrupts. People do sins and there's no new sins out there. Maybe some new ways to do the sins, but it's still the same sin. And God says, his truth endures for all generations. His answers are what's correct. And just as they did in the Old Testament, they justified what they were doing as, and, and tried to justify it. And God says, no, you're still wrong. And we're still doing the same thing today. We will still be doing the same thing, probably through the millennial kingdom, where God is forcing an obedience. After the millennial kingdom, when everybody has glorified, redeemed bodies, it'll be better. It'll be better. There won't be all this rejecting God's truth. But there's nothing new. God says, my truth endures. And we want to keep that going forward. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you. We ask that you help us to rejoice before you all the time and to trust in your truth. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.